You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Andres Gomez, Assistant Professor of Microbiomics at the University of Minnesota. Andres, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, tell me, what is microbiomics? Uh, well, microbiomics uh, practically encompasses all the techniques that are being used today to study microbes, not only their presence or absence, but also their function and interactions with the environment they live in. So uh, microbiomics uh, includes uh, next-generation sequencing techniques, uh, metabolomics, uh, as well as proteomics, and any other uh, technique that would allow us to understand uh, what is the composition of microbes in a given ecosystem and what they're doing, basically. Most people, when they talk about, um, you know, looking at the microbiome, what are they looking at? Are they just trying to, uh, you know, take a whole bunch of microbes and chop them up and look at their DNA? Or are they looking at their metabolites or what they eat or their signaling molecules? I mean, how do they, how do you look at them versus uh, yeah. what you've seen other people look at them at? Yeah, exactly. So, so that's uh, why the word microbiomics is important because depending on the technique, you will be able to get a specific snapshot of microbes. Uh, so some people just do, you know, extract the DNA from a given environmental sample. And based on that DNA, they could um, sort out the taxonomic composition of the microbes there. So basically answers the question of who's there, right? You know, in this mm. sample, we find X and Y and, and Z kind of microbes. Some people also extract the DNA to get information about the genes that are present in that system, which in essence is not a, a survey of the taxonomic composition, but the potential, the genomic potential or the potential function those microbes can, can accomplish. And there's also uh, one of the techniques that, are, that has been uh, mostly or most widely used today and that is very powerful that is called metabolomics which is a technique that shows you the kind of metabolites that are being produced by that microbial system uh, in that given yeah. sample. So depending on the question that you have, there are different techniques you can use to get a different snapshot of the microbiome. What about uh, going about beyond that, looking at um, 
what certain microbes eat and then the waste that they excrete. And then if they do um, same strain, interstrain, you know, communication or, you know, cross-strain communication, looking at uh, the vesicles they put out to communicate and receive communication. Sure. Uh, so, so in that case, I would say metabolomics will get you pretty close to that because it basically shows you, it basically gives you a survey of what kind of microbes or what kind of substrates mi- microbes are feeding from in a system and what kind of excretion molecules they're producing. So basically, for example, when you look at the gut microbiome and you do some, when you do a metabolomic assessment, you're able to identify which metabolites are being produced by those microbes upon feeding on different substrates present in that system. Uh, one of the things about these techniques, like metabolomics, it does not only tell you which of the metabolites are being produced by microbes, but which metabolites are also being produced by the host or the animal or the human that is the host of those microbial communities. In many cases, it's difficult to differentiate which metabolites come from what source, but in many other cases, we're very sure about which specific metabolites are microbial source and which ones are human source, or which ones are shared between the two entities. And you know what, you know, in a typical person's gut, I mean, I don't know how many different kind of microbes there are, how many different strains. So how do you know who's making what? How do you separate out their individual metabolites? No, that's not, a, that's not, a, that's not possible. I mean... Um, we know that certain kinds and certain groups of microbes are able to produce specific molecules. For example, short-chain fatty acids, which is uh, um, one of the molecules that the fermentation process uh, yields. We are able to identify which group of microbes are able to produce butyrate, for instance, which are one of the which is one of the most important short-chain fatty acids being produced in the gut of animals that undergo or the yeah. experience fermentation uh, more often. But we, were, we would not be able to tie that specific uh, short-chain fatty acid to one specific strain unless we use some sort of labeling technique, you know, some kind of uh, stable isotope labeling or probing to label that specific substrate so that we know um, by incorporating label DNA we know which strain was able to produce that uh, metabolite upon feeding from, from that labeled substrate. Uh, but if you, do, if you don't do any of those uh, labeling techniques, you wouldn't be able to tie a specific group of metabolites to one microbe specifically. Well, why not when you find uh, certain you know, strains that are in the microbiome, isolate them and then look at them and see what metabolite, you know, feed them and see what uh, All right. metabolites yeah. they're creating. Well, that's different. That's it. That, that, that road we can take if we can uh, isolate microbes, right? So this is the techniques that, uh, these are the techniques that we mostly rely, uh, you know, in the classic microbiology sense. Uh, but when it comes to microbiomics, um, most of the techniques that people use today take into account whole communities as opposed to single microbes. However, I do believe that the microbiome field is moving today from profiling whole communities into being more detailed about what specific strains do. So in that case, we're relying more and more on culturing microbes as opposed to just getting a snapshot of whole communities. And the most successful uh, experiences in research today with the microbiome actually combine the two techniques. Uh, techniques that allow us to profile whole communities, but also techniques that allow us to uh, isolate specific microbes from a system 
so that we can monitor in more detail which molecules are being produced and what, are, what is the effect of those molecules on human and animal health as well. So what are you working on in particular? What's your uh, research about? Well, my research uh, uh, relies on studying microbiomics or using microbiomics techniques, you know, namely uh, DNA high-throughput sequencing, also transcriptomics and metabolomics, to know, uh, first of all, what is the composition and function of microbes in different systems, and to know what is the impact of those microbial communities in the ecosystem or in the host. So I'm particularly interested in the gut microbiome of humans and animals. And the techniques that I'm using right now are focused on studying the composition of microbes in the gut of animals and humans, uh, looking at the metabolites those microbes produced, and studying the impact of those metabolites in human health. Um, as models in my, uh, the questions that I'm trying to address, specifically in the human health realm, uh, I'm very interested in studying non-human primates as a way to understand the evolution of the human microbiome in the context of dietary changes to human evolution. Okay, so again, what are you studying in, in primates, non-human primates? You're looking for what commonalities so you could see specific evolutionary pathways or what are you looking for? Exactly. Exactly. So uh, the, the model of the non-human the, the non-human primate model is pretty interesting because it allows us to uh, take a look at the past as far as uh, so so pretend that we are able to sequence the microbiomes of the ancestors that of human ancestors that have already been extinct. However, we can look at those microbes uh, in a reliable way today, and the best window to the past that we have today is non-human primates. So uh, one of the questions that I'm trying to understand or to solve is uh, how changes in diet across human evolution um, trigger the microbiomes that we have evolved today as humans. So by studying these microbes that are present in non-human primates, we're able to know which microbes have already been lost in the human microbiome. and um, in a way, uh, analyzing what kind of dietary, dietary interventions would allow us to recover those microbes that we have already been lost, what we have already lost, and the influence of those microbes in our health today. So, uh, not only do I use non-human primates in my studies, but also human populations that still have or still preserve um, a traditional or hunting gathering. Um, uh, subsistence patterns, which in a way are very similar to the subsistence patterns and diets that, are, that our existing ancestors used to have, and we as Westerners, we don't, we don't engage anymore in. So uh, those communities of hunter-gatherers, and this is around the world, have communities of microbes that uh, we don't find anymore in Western populations. So I'm very interested in understanding why we have lost those microbes and what is the effect of that loss in human health in connection to the so-called diseases of civilization, you know, cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, and cancer. Uh, we believe the loss of these microbes is correlated to the incidence of those diseases in Western populations today. So what if it's, you know, if uh, primates have the microbes they have and they're fine and you know, I guess, I guess, well, I guess you can't study people 
from 10,000 or 30,000 years ago very easily. So you couldn't see what their microbial composition was and compare it to now, that'd be a closer proxy. Exactly. I guess you have exactly. to go to living primates that have it. Exactly. And not only living primates, but also populations of humans around the world that still uh, live a hunting gathering lifestyle, which is the lifestyle that our human ancestors used to live. And something that we have discovered and that is very intriguing is we see how the gut microbiome of these populations, human populations that still engage in hunting, gathering lifestyles, uh, share a lot of commonalities with the gut microbiome of non-human primates. Uh, some monkeys, you know, from Africa and also gorillas and chimpanzees. And those commonalities are not shared between Western humans and those non-human primates. So in a way, the gut microbiome of hunting, hunter-gatherers around the world is more similar to that of a non-human primate than it would be to a Western humans being from the same species. This is something that is very intriguing to us. Well, what, what, what kind of microbes have you seen uh, diminish? Which ones have you seen increase? Is it whole big populations? Is it very specific microbes? And you know, yeah, what are the differences are... you're seeing? Yeah, there are a very specific group of microbes that we don't see that often anymore in Western population microbiomes, and that we still see in high abundance in both non-human primates and human populations living traditional lifestyles. Some examples of these microbes are uh, Prevotella, which is a microbe that we find in high abundances in non-human primates, but also in animals that rely heavily on fiber for subsistence, like um, cows, for instance, in the rumen have high amounts of Prevotella. Uh, mm. Pigs fed specific uh, grain diets also have high levels of Prevotella. Uh, and also Treponema. Treponema is, an, is also a very interesting bacterium because we find it also in high amounts, not only in these traditional human populations, but also in non-human primates. And it's also a microbe that we also find in um, the rumen uh, of ruminants, for instance. And those microbes, we don't see them that often, if at all, especially in the case of Triponema, in the gut of uh, 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 modern or westernized human populations. So those are some of the microbes that I am studying as far as why we have lost them and what is the effect of that loss in human health. Well, do you have any insights yet? Do you know what their absence or their you know, lack of prevalence is doing? Well, in a very simplistic uh, answer, yes, it's related to diet. And specifically, it's related to diets that are based on uh, plant material. So we as Westerners don't, don't, do not incorporate that much plant material in our diets anymore. And it's um, easy to speculate that the loss of those microbes is particularly connected or correlated to those plant-based diets that we don't consume anymore. However, it's not that straightforward because we don't know what specific fractions or what specific dietary nutritional components of those diets are triggering the abundance of those microbes that we lost. And this is some of the things, these are some of the things we're trying to do today. We're trying to travel to Africa and collect dietary items from non-human primates and human populations that engage in traditional lifestyles and analyze which specific nutrients or chemical compositions of those fibers 
are connected with the loss of those microbes in, in Western human populations. So in a way, you know, you could just say it's any kind of dietary uh, component that is based on fiber. So in that sense, any kind of Western human that engage in, let's say, um, that engages in high uh, consumption of fiber in the form of salad or fruits would theoretically still have levels of those microbes comparable to those seen in non-human primates and traditional human populations, but that's something that we don't see. So it has to be something related to those specific diets in those specific environments that we don't have anymore in the Western diet. So it's not as simple as saying just it's fiber. There's got to be some more dietary fractions connected to the abundance of those microbes. This is something that we're trying to, to, to investigate right now. If, we, if I eat something that I've never eaten before, um, you know, the microbes in my gut, I guess, will try to uh, digest it. But how do I attract microbes specific to the thing that I'm eating to help digest it? Do they, are they carried along with the food, even if it's cooked? Or do they somehow come, you know, are they there in very low numbers in my gut? And, they, you know, all of a sudden they, they, they proliferate because there's fruit for them particularly? Or how do you think yeah, it happens? Yeah, that's a great question. So in theory, in microbial ecology and in ecology in general, we say the environment selects. That is, as long as you're feeding that microbiome with the right substrate, you will be able to uh, trigger the bloom of specific microbes that are, that are feeding from those specific uh, materials. However, that's not what we see, for example, in Western human populations when shifting their diets uh, dramatically uh, into high consumption of fiber. Sometimes we uh, elicit consumption of fiber and we don't see the bloom of those microbes that are connected with that fiber component. So, so this is this is some of the things that I that I'm trying to that I'm trying to or we're trying to investigate. So, is it the case that we have completely lost those microbes that we were supposed to have, let's say, ten thousands of years ago? Uh, in a sense that even if we feed our microbiomes with enough fiber, we're not going to see them anymore? Um, or is it the case that there is also a connection between our genomes and our gut microbiomes that would, in a way, uh, stop these uh, microbes that we're trying to grow or elicit growth from, uh, stopping them from blooming away they would you know, uh, increasing numbers upon the consumption of, of those specific dietary fractions. We don't know that yet. So in essence, yeah, you will, it, it, everything is there and the environment selects. But this is not what we see in human populations upon drastic changes in diet. So my theory is that we have, through thousands of years, we have caused an extinction on our gut microbiomes in a way those specific keystone species are not there anymore. And it will be very hard to replace the microbiome. And, and again, I mean, this is something that uh, the people in the field that are interested in this specific topic are interested in. See whether or how we can elicit the growth of those microbes that, we're, that we lost. But again, seeing if those microbes have any kind of influence in human health. Well, have you um, tried sampling primates and then feeding them something they don't normally eat? And then sampling their gut bacteria again and seeing how it changes, if at all. Or well, looking at a hunter-gatherer yes. that moves to the city and changes their diet, you know, what happens to them? Yeah, so let me give you a very uh, 
specific example with, with uh, captive primates. So in captivity, um, uh, there's been very interesting work done in observing how diets in captivity, captive primate diets, elicit a microbiome in non-human primates that resembles that of humans. So this is a very specific case in which we see how specific dietary changes in captivity that are not able to replicate the wild diet causes extinction of microbes in non-human primates upon those dietary changes. Same thing with human populations. Human populations, even though they are, uh, even, even human populations that are in, in theory under, let's say, more traditional subsistence patterns, upon transition into those westernized dietary patterns, they start losing those microbes that characterize the more wild-type populations. So those experiments, say natural experiments, have already been done, in which we profile the microbiome of traditional populations who rely strictly, let's say, on hunting-gathering, or for the most part of hunting-gathering, and also populations that are in transition to these westernized diets by incorporating more agriculture and more westernized uh, dietary patterns. And we see how the microbiome changed gradually between the two extremes. The populations that can still incorporate, you know, or, or, or uh, follow that traditional subsistence, the populations that are in transition to these westernized patterns, and the totally westernized population. So we see that there's actually a change in microbiomes upon transition into the Western diet. And the same thing happens in, in captive non-human primates. We see how the microbiome of captive non-human primates is different to that of the wild primate counterparts, but also very close to the microbiome of human populations when the primates are in captivity. Well, what if you take the primates in captivity and start feeding them the wild diet again? Have you tried that and, you know, for a series of months to see if the old microbiome will come back? Well, this is some of the things that zoom zoos are in, uh, incorporated right now. Zoom zoos are actually gradually trying to uh, mimic some of the elements of the wild diet into the captive diet uh, environment. Uh, but we, don't, we do not have any kind of microbiome data yet uh, to be able to contrast whether those gradual dietary changes are putting that microbiome back in a state it resembles the wild counterparts. Actually, we have a project right now on heart disease in gorillas, in captive gorillas, uh, because in captivity, the main cause of death uh, in gorillas, for instance, is heart disease, metabolic disease, really? which is very similar to what happens in human populations you know, on the Western diets. Uh, yeah. So we're trying to investigate how these uh, captive diets have not only rendered their microbiomes, let's say, less wild, but also how those changes in microbiomes is likely connected to the high incidence of metabolic and cardiovascular disease captive gorillas have. But we still have not uh, uh, analyzed or, or uh, we're not in that stage of the data analysis yet in which we can see how zoos that are trying to incorporate more elements or the wild primate diet are able to, let's say, uh, uh, recover some of that lost microbiome. How come you can't give uh, someone like a Prevotella sandwich, you know, some of the bacteria they've lost along with the food that uh, 
that bacteria would eat and feed them that, you know, both to try to reestablish that population in them, you know, over a yeah. period of months. Yeah, that that's a that's also a, a, another good question because uh, um, and I'm sure you're familiar with the with the craze of the probiotic world right now, right? Everything is probiotic yep. right now, even in the mainstream media. So one of the things my lab is trying to uh, figure out is what would happen if we use those lost microbes as probiotics today. The only problem mm. is that. If you use those microbes as probiotics, just as you mentioned, a sandwich or Prevotella, you would also have to incorporate the substrates these microbes feed from uh, simultaneously. So in my humble opinion, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if one microbe solution is what's going to propel the probiotic uh, field. But it's not. It's, it could be a community of microbes. So it's not. It, it might be not just Prevotella. It might be Prevotella and some other stuff. It might not just be Prevotella, but also Prevotella and the substrates that Prevotella needs for survival. So instead of making a sandwich of just Prevotella, I will make a sandwich of Prevotella and other microorganisms that are going to provide uh, metabolic or metabolites or metabolic products for Prevotella to feed from but also the substrates that Prevotella and other microbes that we suspect are in the same realm need to survive and to flourish in the system. Because what you need to remember is that when you consume a microbe, the microbe needs to make it all the way, you know, through the upper gastrointestinal tract down to the column where they have to compete with a lot of, tri you know, trillions and trillions of microbes for subsistence and, and, and to be able to flourish. Yeah. Well, what about uh, fecal transplants and primates in captivity? Has that been tried, you know, along with feeding them? Yeah, I think I don't know to the top of my head, but I, I'm, I'm, I think that those things have been considered uh, in the zoo world. Uh, having fecal transplants in uh, captive primates to see what happens to their health. I don't know in context of the gut microbiome, I'm not aware of any research being done on the matter. Uh, at this at this point, but I know uh, these things, these fecal transplant therapies have been considered also in the captive primate world. I'm just not aware of any kind of published results so far. But let's not go uh, that far. I mean, in even in food animals, we know that we are considering uh, fecal transplants in piglets, for instance, and also in cats to see if if those fecal transplants yield a more a healthier and a more productive animal. And we know there are some mixed results on the matter. We know that it's very difficult for a community of microbes to establish in a microbiome that has already been matured and established. Uh, and there's also lots of other things about fecal transplants in the human world uh, that still need to be figured out. I don't know if you heard the news recently that there's a, there was a patient died from a fecal transplant recently is because in the course of that fecal transplant, really? that patient also received a, a drug-resistant bug. And there's serious suspicions right. that the fecal transplant and the bug that the guy, the person received, uh, had that uh, multi-resistant uh, bug as Somewhere well. Stuff. So there's a lot of, yeah. Huh. Yeah, uh, that, that, came out, that came out in the news very, very recently. So there's a lot of things about fecal transplant that we still need to figure out. I know there's been a lot of success and or you know more promising in the food animal world as far as you know making fecal transplants between 
high-performing animals and low-performing animals and see how that uh, reestablishes their microbiome in a way uh, performance and health can be improved. Hmm. Hey, interesting. Um, well, I don't know. I'm trying to think. Uh, well, I guess there's a lot to ask you. But uh, So what do you expect will be figured out or elucidated you know, by your research or others' research in the, in the near-term future in the next couple of years? As far as the microbiome is concerned? Yeah. Uh, I, I think I think there's a lot of hype about the microbiome and, and the promise that microbiome therapy, microbiome research can bring for human health. However, I believe we're still a little bit far from that. And the stage that we are in is looking at the composition and the function of the microbiome across different systems. So mining for microbes, mining for systems that are still very unknown, like hunter-gatherers and non-human primates. We still don't know from 30 to 20% of the microbes that exist and live in these unexplored systems. So I think we're still in a stage in which we are gathering information from microbes and microbial communities as far as the composition and function. Try to discover what is the composition, what is the function of those microbes and those systems. Uh, before we're able to make microbiome science more translatable, right? Before we are able to actually uh, exploit uh, the the benefit of microbiome research for the sake of human health. We still need to do more exploratory work on the matter. I think the fecal mm-hmm. transplant uh, field is a very exciting field right now, but in connection to the comment I made, I made before, you know, we still have first very mixed results, and second, we don't know if it's safe enough. Uh, but once we figure that out, I would say that's going to be one of the major breakthroughs breakthroughs in, in microbiome science. Uh, I know there's a lot of researchers um, testing uh, those fecal transplants in the form of lyophilized pills. So in a way, it will be like having a fecal transplant but in, in a tablet, in a pill, and see what that does to your microbiome. Uh, yeah. But I think I think those things are still on on the beginnings. Uh, but at the, one of the things that, are, that I'm most excited about is to be able to come up, as I said before, I don't believe in one microbe solution. I know the probiotic industry is a multi-billion dollar industry right now. But again, there's a lot of mixed results about the effect of probiotics on human health. So for me, one of the, the directions that the field should be moving right now is to offer a solution that does not rely on one microbe, on one food but that incorporates everything together. So not only prebiotics, which are uh, materials that elicit the growth of beneficial microbes, but also probiotics embedded within the same solution. Uh, I think uh, from the things that are coming uh, as far as microbiome-based therapy, uh, that's maybe one of the most promising fields right now. So come up with a solution of you know, exploiting microbes for the benefit of human health that not only has live microbes, but also those substrates, uh, those diets or dietary fractions that we still don't know what they are, but they can improve human health in the in the process. Do you know of anyone that's looking at um, how bacteria in our gut communicate with our somatic cells and if they do? Yeah, yeah. And this is something that we're, we're doing right now, for instance. Right now, one of the... Um, Futures of microbiome research 
as featured by the Human Microbiome Project, uh, this is a paper that came out probably like two weeks ago, is to keep exploring the relationship between microbial cells and somatic cells, as you said. What is the specific molecular crosstalk between the gut microbiome, for instance, and the immune system? And this is some mm-hmm. research that we're doing right now in our lab. We're very interested in knowing which kind of genes in our gut, I'm talking about human genes, are turned off and turned on upon the action of specific microbes. And this is another area of microbiome research that I would say is the next, uh, is the next frontier as far as where the, where the field is going right now. So 10 years ago, when the whole human microbiome uh, craze and, 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 and let's say uh, the area started to flourish, we're just looking at patterns of microbiomes you know, in health and disease and across different animals and, and different systems. But right now, what, 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 what is being done and where the field is going is to analyze in detail what is the genetic and molecular crosstalk between microbes in the gut, in the case of human health, or microbes in any other surface in humans, and genes in, in the human genome. What kind of genes are turned off and turned on upon being in contact with those microbes? And you wonder how uh, it affects our gene expression and how our gene expression affects it. It's just so complicated. It's crazy. You know? Well, I think the, the, the uh, new molecular and, and sequencing techniques allow us to be very close to answering that question. So one thing that I'm doing right now, we're doing right now in our lab, we're looking at gene expression patterns in the gut of different non-human primates in human populations living in different subsystem patterns and characterizing that interaction between that gene expression and the presence of certain microbes, as well as the metabolites those certain microbes produce. One particular group of microbes that I'm interested in is the microbes that are mentioned before, the microbes that we lost as Westerners, and we don't know if we can recover anymore. So by looking at the interactions between, let's say, the Prevotella and the Treponemus, the interaction between those microbes and the genes that are expressed upregulated or downregulated in our gut is a way to understand what is the specific function or specific effect of those microbes have in human health. Yeah. Well, I guess we're out of time. A lot of uh, super interesting questions, but what's the best way for people to uh, reach out and ask questions of you or look at your lab and see what you're doing? Exactly. So my lab is in the Animal Science Department, uh, University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. Uh, anybody with an interest in uh, microbiomes is certainly welcome to ask any question they have. They can uh, reach me out in my email, which is Gomez A, which will be my last name, and then the letter A at the end, at umn.edu. I also have a Twitter account, uh, Lab Gomez, um, and I can... Uh, you know, we'll be very happy to, to get questions, let's say, from the general public about, uh, about microbiome research. Because if there's one thing about the microbiome is that it's become mainstream right now. So mm, microbiome right. is not just of interest to us scientists, but also to the general population. Uh, especially when you, when you take into account all this new craze about probiotics, let's say fermented foods, prebiotics, and all right. that. So 
Yeah, uh, I, I'll be, uh, we would be very happy to welcome in any kind of question you know, the general public has. Very good. Well, Andres, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. No, thank you so much, uh, Richard, for the invitation. I'm happy to answer any further questions, uh, you guys, so any of your listeners have. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.